District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a special Tuesday episode of District of Conservation. I am your host, Gabriella Hoffman. I hope this podcast finds you well. There's been a lot happening, and I'm going to do my best to simplify things for you guys. I have some updates, events I want to share with you. Tomorrow's episode, I'm going to largely go over some speaking engagements I had recently, opportunities to look forward to. Today's episode is largely going to focus on this upcoming Stop 30 by 30 Summit in Lincoln, Nebraska, where I'm speaking at, and also my exclusive interview with Braxton McCoy, an author and storyteller who I think you guys will really appreciate. I had a great time speaking with him. Our conversation lasted about an hour. So I have that for you today, a little bit of business and a little bit of a fun interview. Here's a little biography about Braxton. He's the author of The Glass Factory, and he possesses over a decade of public speaking experience as has engaged a wide variety of audiences to include Fortune 500 executives, military members, rehabilitation centers, NBA, MLB, and NFL players and executives. Unmistakably humble, raw, compassionate, and humorous, his powerful story and frank methods on introducing these values stay with audience members long after the ovation has come to an end. So like I said, you're going to hear a little bit about the summit, and then we're going to move on to my convo with Braxton. So enjoy. Next week, I am heading to the Cornhusker State, Nebraska, for the first time to participate in their upcoming Stop 30 by 30 Summit. It is being hosted by Governor Pete Ricketts and presented by American Stewards of Liberty. I previously brought Margaret Beifeld onto the program. She gave a very interesting examination and look into 3030 in the problems and set in that policy and why it will impede on true conservation efforts. I want to talk briefly about the summit and what you can expect if you are in the area or interested in attending. Basically, it is built as a summit where experts from across America are gathering to stop the largest federal land grab our nation has ever seen. If you had purchased tickets before April 7th, it cost $75, but I think it increased a little bit. So if you're interested in attending, there is a cost of admission, but it's really not that bad. It's pretty reasonable. The venue is at the Graduate Hotel in downtown Lincoln, and the event will take place on Earth Day, April 22nd from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. local time. And there are different hotels listed. Some of the sponsors, of course, the primary sponsor of my podcast, C-Fact, who I collaborate with on a regular basis, is one of the key sponsors. And there's also the Heartland Institute, the Heritage Foundation, RCAF USA, Chavez County Commissioner Will Caven. There's also the Protect the Harvest Initiative, Range, American Policy Center, and MacGyver Ranch, Texas, and Nebraska Farm Bureau. Who is going to be speaking? I'm going to be part of a panel where I kind of share my perspective as a journalist and commentator about my objections to this and why I think it's important to communicate the problems with this in a civil manner, of course. But also speaking, of course, would be the summit host, Pete Ricketts, the governor. And he was the first governor, if you didn't know, to oppose 3030. He and a handful of other governors wrote a letter condemning the policy, saying that it's very vaguely defined. It would really impede on private property rights and really departs from the true conservationist ethos. And he was one of 15 governors who signed a letter opposing it. There's also some other keynote speakers. You guys remember probably... 
a while ago, I had the opportunity to interview former Interior Secretary David Bernhardt on two occasions. He was the 53rd Secretary of the Department of Interior under President Trump. Before he took over Secretary Zinke, after Zinke left, he was Deputy Interior Secretary. Colorado Representative Lauren Boebert is going to also be speaking because she was the chief sponsor of H.R. 3014, the 3030 Termination Act. She is leading the effort behind stopping 3030 in the House of Representatives. There's also Senator D Kevin Kramer, and he is one of the original sponsors of the Senate version of 3030 termination bill, which would nullify the Biden administration's 3030 land grab and protect private property rights. Also, a keynote speaker is Becky Norton Dunlap, a Ronald Reagan Distinguished Fellow at the Heritage Foundation and is a forceful defender of property rights. And I think she worked in Interior or EPA, one of those agencies, I think, in Reagan's time. So lots of great speakers. I'm also going to be on a panel alongside CFAC President Craig Rucker and some other speakers. There's also a lot of ranchers and activists who are going to be participating. It's going to be a great event. And if you need something to do, you want to learn more about the issue, definitely encourage you to attend. You get to meet me if you're interested in meeting with me and picking my brain on different issues. And it's a, probably going to be a more intimate type of setting than you get from most conferences. So I hope you guys attend. That's my little pitch for it. And I hope to see you in Lincoln, Nebraska on April 22nd next week. As promised, here is my interview with Braxton McCoy. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for joining the podcast, Braxton. Very nice to speak with you finally. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Gabriella. Did I say that correctly? You said it perfectly well. Absolutely. Okay, okay. <laughs> Tell my listeners your backstory because people who, I think people know who you are and I hope more people know who you are, but I want my listeners to know your backstory and what you do. Uh, I grew up on a little horse outfit in Southern Utah. Um, my stepdad is an electrical electrician, essentially, maybe electrical engineer. I can't remember exactly what title he, he had there, but he ran about 40 head of horses. And, uh, you know, we did some, a lot of uh, colt starting and that kind of thing. He did then. And I rode a bunch of young horses getting bucked off and all that kind of stuff when I was a kid. And then I rodeoed for a bit. Um, and then I joined the military after 9-11. 9-11 happened when I was in uh, junior in high school. So it was kind of like chomping at the bit to get there. But uh, so I enlisted when I was 17. And then I shipped right after I got done with high school and went to Iraq. Shortly, like I turned 20 in Iraq and ended up getting wounded over there pretty bad. Uh, and then I came home and I worked in the not-for-profit sector for a while, mostly doing outreach for some not-for-profits. Because uh, at the time, my body was pretty banged up. I couldn't get, I couldn't do uh, as much physically at the time. So did the nonprofit thing for a while. And then I finally got to where I was just doing mostly speaking. And I mean, there's kind of a whole lot in between uh, A and B there, but I got to where I was doing mostly just speaking and uh, that transitioned to finally writing a book. And then I wrote the book uh, and actually right when COVID started, so I wrote the book in 2017. Could you name and the so book? The book is called The Glass Factory. Uh, it's 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 a book about the war, kind of, but it's mostly about recovering from injuries and and some of the stuff that happened afterwards. You know, get, getting over opioid addictions and uh, just a whole mess of. It's really kind of a 
for those of you who are Dostoevsky fans, it's really like it's kind of a notes from the underground type story, except for real life in some sense. Um, but so I wrote that book and then I was speaking and just trying to raise my kids and riding a little, a few horses here and there. And, uh, and then when COVID started, so I'm a, I'm a cult starter by trade, you know, now just to, to make things clear. So I was riding Colts. And then when COVID started, uh, I decided to get on Twitter because, you know, I've been, I've been very guarded about my politics before then, because, you know, most of the public speaking gigs are, kind of, you know, Fortune 500 type companies. And and there's some very clear political leanings with, you know, booking folks and those uh, at those places. So I guarded my politics. Uh, but when COVID started, all the speeches for 2020 got canceled. One of them got canceled like the day before I was supposed to travel to Las Vegas to give the presentation or the keynote. And so I got on Twitter and just started kind of mouthing off and, uh, being honest about how I feel about things. And then that sort of blossomed into this new place where uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm still a cult starter. That's what I do full time. We raise a handful of cattle, but I, I have this other life now that uh, is almost hard to describe. Like some, some person called me a, a, a pundit the other day, really? which is, yeah, which is just absurd because I'm very clearly not a political pundit, but, uh, but I am in some kind of very bizarre gray area now where, you know, opinions are, uh, opinions are part of the game, you know, for me now, which is something that I never would have ever expected, but, uh, good thing. I always tell people uh, the good thing is it can't be canceled because horses can't read, you know, so, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I'm a cult starter and kind of a professional crap talker on Twitter, I guess, in some ways. You have a very informative Twitter account. I, that's how we were able to connect through a mutual friend, mutual contact, I should say, Oilfield Rando. And mm -hmm. I know he likes to be more uh, kind of elusive these days. He used to, I think, reveal his personality, but I think because of cancellation and other things, he operates more anonymously. But you and I were... <clears throat> Connecting originally over different issues, I know that the great outdoors for anyone, especially for veterans, is probably one of the most therapeutic experiences you can have. Is that something you feel? That's why you hunt, break colts, do a lot of the outdoor lifestyle, and it's multifaceted kind of nature? Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I, in fact, I know you're right. I, I wrote some about this toward the end of my book. Uh, I spent some time as a, and I still do, but I, I spent about five years guiding elk and deer hunters and a, a couple of bear hunters, but mostly elk and deer hunters uh, for the, um, in Idaho and Utah. And, uh, you know, yes, I think it's, yeah, it can be, I don't want to use the word transformative because I don't think that's accurate, but I, I think time outside forces self-reflection and it goes beyond just a thing that happens is that you're disconnected from your phone, which is an important, what I, I believe is a very important thing because you, you, you need to occasionally untether from the world and just experience yourself uh, and not, not just yourself, but like experience yourself in a place where you're insignificant, which is the important part. And I, that only happens in the outdoors. Uh, like I, I one time said that I, on Twitter, I was talking about this with somebody, and I just said that uh, for all these sort of materialist-minded people, 
I've never seen mountains scattered across a pile of bones, you know, but I've seen the, the inverse a million times. And, you know, it might sound silly and overly like maybe even too flowery, but I really think it's important to, to spend time in a place that God made. Uh, and it's not just because it humbles you, it does that, but also because it reveals what creation really is and what your role in that is, you know? And so, yes, I think it's very important for self-reflection and that can get you out of your own headspace where, you know, a thing that happens to vets a lot is they will, maybe they, maybe they don't even realize it, but they will be living in their head all the time. Like I spent a decade living in Ramadi in my, in my head, even though I was surrounded by, modernity back here in a first world country but my mind was always there so when you get outside uh, and get in places where you're you're kind of forced to live in the moment then you can't you really can't do that you have to be focused on on the here and now and the present and you know cults do that as well like you can't you can't ignore a cult for for more than a couple of seconds or else you can get yourself in trouble so yeah, I think anything that forces you to to live in the present, uh, but also humbles you at the same time, is is a powerful sort of powerful exercise. I guess is how I'd say that. I wish more people would spend time outdoors. I know some people are like, we don't need any more people to go fishing and hunting because they're going to take away our spaces. But seeing what's happening culturally, I'm firmly in the camp of if people were fishing, taking up poles, doing hunting, spending more time outdoors. A lot of this really bizarre things we're seeing culturally would not be happening. People would still be very close to their families, very plugged into reality, not so much the superficial or this materialistic worldview that a lot of people are kind of falling prey to. But I, I, I think, yeah, whether you're a veteran or not, time in the outdoors is really supposed to be you, nature, things you may be pursuing or things you may come across along the way. And it really is a kind of out-of-body experience, it kind of humbles you, like you said, and you realize your place in this country, in the world, in the earth, more spe- more broadly speaking, when you're spending time outdoors. And it actually calms you. It makes you less privy to, to be angry. And I, I wish more people on Twitter especially would discover how wonderful that is. But speaking of heavenly places, let's talk about Utah, where you say mm-hmm. that you grew up and you run your business and your whole operation out of I think a lot of people in conservation misrepresent what Utah is all about. A lot of people have daggers thrown at Utah because they don't like how some of the politics there relating to conservation takes hold. Mm -hmm. Could you explain what people get wrong about Utah when it comes to public lands or kind of the Western hunting ethos? Yeah. Yeah. That's a big topic. But um, so we live in Idaho now, but I am from Southern Utah, but um, most of the, the daggers that you're talking about specifically come from the PLI movement and other movements that were and the, the PLI movement was the public lands initiative. And that was Rob Bishop and Mike Lee and uh, a couple of other people. Uh, essentially it was, essentially it was like, we're going to sell off these, what, what they deemed uh, useless lands to help pay off the national. Now if, if Mike Lee's plan was different, but PLI was to sell off what they deemed as, kind of useless lands in order to help pay down the national debt. And obviously there are some very big problems with that idea. Like starting with, 
that public lands are the crown jewel of the United States. I mean, they really are. They're in a lot of ways what separates our nation from other developed nations like Germany. Uh, has some Germany has some beautiful landscapes, but it doesn't have anything like what we have because so much of it is privatized. Um, but you got to the, the genesis of this, the real genesis of the PLI movement is the there there's an there is absolutely a certain amount of government overreach in 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 Utah. Like Utah is something like seventy percent federal lands at this point, and there's some very big debate as to whether constitutionally whether the the federal government can own or manage land, and I you know I'll leave that to I'll leave that to political scholars, but. What, you, what we've seen is that the government is very happy to do things like create monuments, which sound good uh, at first. It, to somebody who do, doesn't know any better, they sound really good. Um, usually they come in under the pretense of this will be better for wildlife, this will be better, you know, better for the, the soil and the water, most importantly in a state like Utah, which is the second driest state in the union. Um but what happens is inevitably uh, those monuments become national parks. And once they're national parks, you can forget about hunting. There's your, the hunting part is done and over with. And I would say even more importantly, once it's a national park, your ability to actually explore that thing, that, that land without being uh, sort of pestered by the government is, is, it's near impossible. Like all of a sudden you have trails and you're being monitored at every moment. And it's very, I mean, I don't want to be over the top about it, but it, but it's intrusive. Uh, a national park is, as opposed to monument. And so I used to volunteer with a, a very well-known public lands advocacy group. And one of the things that they would try to combat is this, this thing that came out of Utah where Utahns would say, well, listen, we've got five national parks in our state now, and four of those five started as national monuments. And, and this group would try to say, essentially, that, that like that's not true or, that, or you're, that's maybe overwrought, but it absolutely is true. Like uh, in 1909, the uh, Macontaweep, or however you were to say that, uh, national monument was, was, became a monument, and then in 1919, it was turned into Zion National Park. Um, Bryce Canyon was made a, a monument in 1923, and then in 1928, it became a national park. Um, Arches, 1929, was a national monument. In 1971, it was designated a park. Capitol Reef, 1937, monument, 1971, national park. Um, the only monument, or excuse me, the only park in Utah that began as a park was Canyonlands, and that was in, I, I, I think, 64 by L, LBJ. So Utahns have this very uh, precarious relationship with the federal government, even even worse than Nevada, because every like there's just more uh, geological diversity in the state. So these grounds that are beautiful and Utahns would argue belong to them end up being turned into national parks that render them I don't want to say unusable, but uh, you know the 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 multi-use mandate goes out the window once it's a national park. I'm sure right. your listeners know what a multi-use mandate is, but mm -hmm. 
So that's, you know, um, that is really the genesis of the POI thing, at least like not necessarily maybe for Bishop, but for the people, the Utahns, the everyday Utah that supported it is looking at it from this, uh, from this perspective, because they remember Grand Escalante, you know, um, uh, and all the, you know, uh, the sort of trials that came with that, you know, if you were a rancher that had a lease in Escalante, like all of a sudden that got cut to almost nothing because, you know, federal government overage. And, and this has uh, been reiterated or yeah, reiterated over and over and over again throughout Utah's history. And so the daggers come because of PLI and PLI, I think was a problem. Now, Mike Lee's bill, which was not PLI was even worse. It was like the modern homestead act, but just get rid of all federal lands, you know, sell off all federal lands. Um, and that one, I think, deserves some ire. But uh, at the very least, it's important to understand why Utah feels the way that it does. And I, I don't know that I did a very good job explaining that. But I thought that was comprehensive. Definitely. I've had him on the show, too. And I said, well, your critics say that you're against public lands. And he actually gave a very, I would say, concrete response saying and challenging those assertions. And you may disagree. I think listeners, I mean, you generally listeners may disagree with what he supported, but I think it's, I think nowadays you will not see a, maybe except for a handful of people say, yes, sell off all public lands to private interests. I don't see anyone in the Republican party supporting that so much. It used to be, I would say more popular and accepted of a position, but people, I think even very stalwart conservatives, I would say myself included, we recognize the value of public land. So I don't think we're going to see like that movement you suggested materialize, but people do want accountability for national par- or national monument designations so that they could have input, that they can maintain access and that their ability to recreate in some, in some instances, even maybe make their livelihoods off of public lands can still be maintained. And that actually brings me to 3030. We had actually connected over 3030. And I think that's even it's kind of a, it is like a public lands issue in a sense, but it's something that a lot of people in conservation haven't really taken a look into yet, or they're afraid to chime in. I know sportsmen's groups, hunters, anglers, and fisher type groups have created kind of like their working plan relating to the Biden administration, but it really has been an issue. I think that's animated you and really concerned you. So I know it's kind of adjacent to the national monument issue, but not so much, but why is 3030 something that I think is on your mind and, and maybe something that should be on everyone else's mind. Yeah. Well, fu- um, fundamentally I, I am uh, a cowboy. That's what I do. And this, the, the 30, 30, 30, 30, 30 by 30 initiative, whatever you want to call it um, is really actually, in my opinion, better understood as they laid out in the EO, the executive order is better understood as 50 by 50. Um, and there, a, a a prime concern here is that they're being super vague about what they're what, like. They're saying we want to designate thirty percent of America's lands and thirty percent of America's water under some sort of protective model that is like a uh, almost like a snow globe put together by the federal government, you know, over these lands. And they're not saying they're not being super specific about what that means. They're not even being specific about which lands already qualify. And so, and, and excuse me, the thirty percent of the America's lands and waters is by the year twenty thirty, um, and then fifty percent by the year twenty fifty. Well, 
just if you just take the 30% part, that's an area that's like twice the size of Texas. If you took an, an area twice the size of the state of Texas out of this country, you are there is you can almost say goodbye to the beef industry in this country. There's all these small, like the one I grew up on, all these small farms and ranches, they are absolutely done. There is no way. If they come in and say this cannot be grazed anymore because it's under federal protection, um, I, I mean, we are going to be in, in big, big trouble as an industry and, and, in my opinion, as a people because, you know, I don't want to live in a pot and eat bugs, right? Uh, I'm very happy eating steak uh, every night. I like that. So, uh, this this concerns me quite a bit. Um, but then, you know, you, you can sound Alex Jonesy and tinfoil hattie when you start talk this way. But if you just think about the part where they say it's 50 percent by 2050, there is no way to get there's no way to add in like what, what the administration would argue is that whatever they don't already have under at least so far as I can tell that whatever they don't already have under federal designation, whether it's monument there's some question as to whether tribal lands really fall under this or not. So that's something that really needs to be clarified. Um, but whether it's a monument, national forest, uh, BLM ground, or national park, you've that those grounds only make up something like 18% of that 30%. So you've got to make up the rest of that 30% somewhere, that, that other 12%. And their, their contention is, at least so far as I can tell, that they will use uh, some, something akin to like a CRP 2.0 mm -hmm. and willing, selling, willing seller, willing buyer, like buy ground off uh, from you know small family ranches or wherever. Could you okay. explain what that is? Because some people may not know what a conservation easement Okay, so CRP as a whole, the, the beginning of C, the genesis of CRP, this is what a lot of people don't remember, is the genesis of CRP was actually the federal government trying to take ground out of production because they were trying to, in a sense, like a central plan the farming industry because we were going through all kinds of problems and, you know, uh, stagflationary periods in the 70s and then, you know, that led up to the 80s where we had the what's known in the in the ag industry is the get bigger out get get big or get out era um because you know paul volcker came in and raised interest rates 20 percent because he's you know trying to deal with inflation and um so crp was originally uh the uh, like the sort of us yeah just just american ag uh attempt to control or to uh, excuse me, put some pressures on that market to try to make it less volatile. This is this was, I mean, this would be like their their view of it. Now, what CRP is is the conservation relief program, and it's it's still essentially doing the same thing. But it's like they'll come, like for instance, my neighbor, the pivot that I that I live in, my neighbor has some CRP ground, and they just pay him X amount of dollars every year to not till. Uh, a certain section of this property because it's sage grouse habitat. There are no sage grouse in that field. The sage grouse are out in the sage. They're not in this field, right? Um, but that's ostensibly uh, the ostensible goal is to protect bird habitat, uh, which uh, I don't know whether I don't know how much I believe that that is exactly what they're trying to. But but that is what's 
that is supposedly on its face what CRP is is conservation relief. So, like, let's say you're in, let's say you're in uh, South Dakota, and they're trying to protect uh, pheasants. They'll they'll pay you money, which pheasants are an inv- invasive species in some. They're not invasive because people don't hate them, but they're not a natural species to America. But the government will pay you some money to not till up that ground in order to provide habitat for pheasants. Same is true for whitetail and the Midwest and, and so on. Um, but, the, but the fear is like, or, or a fear here is that if that, um, if that sort of mindset is cast across 30%, we haven't even got to the water part, right? But if that, if that is cast across 30% of this, the ground here, I don't know how to, to view that as anything other than the death of small agriculture. Uh, the, the big companies are going to be okay. You know, the Simplots of the world and Cargills and, and so on are going to be fine. But the small guys going to be in big trouble. Um, so that's my fear. And then once you get to uh, the year 2050, you're talking about 50% of this country. Like what 50%? Because they don't mean New York. Right. Like they don't mean New York City when they talk about this, like they, they don't mean they're going to add Central Park or something. I mean, maybe maybe they will, but that would be insignificant anyway. Right. Um, they mean this. They mean the Mountain West and the Midwest and the willing seller, willing seller, willing buyer part factors in here. And that what they what they would say is, well, uh, we'll just pay. This is not necessarily in the domain because they're not taking it. They're saying, well, the the government will just buy this property off of this farmer at whatever market value is, or perhaps slightly over market value, and then the farmer's happy and the government gets this new land. Well, you execute that uh, over the course of you know leading up to like a total of, in totality fifty percent of this, the ground. I mean, I don't even know. I don't know. It seems like very totalitarian and scary and i'm not trying to be like alex jones over here but the idea of the federal government buying off small ag land and amassing acreage <laughs> to the sum of 50 percent of the, the land mass of this country is just i mean it's horrifying and that's not even talking about water like let's say you're in nebraska for example like everybody knows that texas is almost all privately owned land but Nebraska is one that they don't think about. I think Nebraska is like 98, right mm-hmm. around that, 98% private ground. Well, what do you do with the what do you do with the water in Nebraska? If you're snatching, if you if you need to be in control of 50% of the water in the country, what do you do with the the water that's coming out of those pivots in Nebraska? Is that like is that now under federal control or what? Um it just there's almost there's there's just too many questions right now and um, the speculative answers don't. Speculative answers look scary, uh, especially when you look into like who's, you know, pushing for this. You know, like the nature conserv nature conservancy. Like, I mean, this is this is a straight up like Greenpeace two type group. And uh, yeah, anyway, sorry for the digression. No, I, I thought about this. certainly, and and I think more people should be impassioned about it. But actually, I don't know if you know this, I had spoken to some people in the Western caucus and they put out a 
alternative to 3030 because of the shortcomings relating to the definition of conservation. And they actually disputed what percentage of already federally owned land is total off limits to multiple uses. And actually the geological service, believe it or not, their gap analysis project on protected areas through database or PADUS, they actually compiled available data on BLM land, National Park Service, Fish and Wildlife, and forest lands. And actually it comes out to that 40.6% of waters and lands are already conserved or preserved from any human activity. So they're kind of misleading the public about the 12% figure, I think. So that's something, I don't know if you you were aware of that, but I wanted to include that because that's, it's like, so they're already far exceeding this. And then obviously I've heard chatter that they do want to expand it to 50 by 50. So they're not too far off this goal (laughs) right now. Well, Well, okay. You're right. But the if the administration is not giving a firm definition of what conserved means, if like if that is not concretized in legal language, then we're we're sort of um, we're playing semantical games here, and mm-hmm. that's I guess that's the part that worries me is what I'm trying to say. It should worry everyone because they conflate conservation with preservation. Oftentimes, we see this in media. And it's something I try to dispute often because they are trying to contort the two ideas and they're very, very different. And they say that they're conservationists, but they reject any human input or human involvement where human involvement in different issues can actually be a net positive. As we know, obviously with ranching and farming, you see, I've seen with other industries that human impact is not that bad as advertised. (laughs) So people have to yeah, so it, it, we can't control nature in some regards, and, and sometimes our involvement is warranted to ensure that things don't go out of balance, like managing species, uh, tilling <laughs> land, lots of different things. So I think people regard, so the people who are crafting this plan, I think, view that nature is just this indomitable force. We have to rewild everything, which is impossible, let's say, to rewild the whole entire grizzly bear population. You're never going to achieve the historical ranges in terms of their population. Same with wolves. And so when they try to, when they try to prevent delisting things of that sort, or with any issue, they say, no, we have to go back to the original stance. And that's impossible to do in this day and age, especially with things becoming more urbanized or people moving into different places, sharing the landscape, you know, human wildlife conflicts, things of that sort. So I think they don't recognize that they already are doing certain things, maybe even more than they should. And they're misleading people on what conservation is. So I think that's why there have been alternatives, why different interests have been voting, I think, in different counties across the country to say that our county is not going to adhere to 3030. And I don't know how much more of a movement it's going to build, but I think in a handful of states right now, Nebraska included, Nebraska has actually been the one leading the effort against 30 by 30 with Governor Pete Ricketts. And I'm going to be going to their summit uh, in a few weeks time just to kind of learn more about what's happening there. But different states recognize it. I think now it's uh, 13, 14 governors have also signed in opposition. I think more will hopefully join in board very, very soon. But it's something I hope people do put on the radar because I think in principle, conservation easements can work. But if they're in perpetuity permanently, I think that could be a very big problem and take out private landowners from involvement and having a say over these type of shared decisions that really do warrant their involvement. So to me, that's where I can see, I think, the private property rights concern um, definitely coming to light and limiting people from access, whether you're recreating or making a livelihood off of that. 
Yeah, to your point here, um, Utah is actually a good example of the uh, um, the average. I'm just going to say it: the average Dem voter in Utah uh, really being blind to the realities of species management in the state. They will go on and on about how Utahns give these, you know, expensive depredation elk permits and stuff to uh, ranches and, you know, which actually I think Utah has done a pretty good job with their, uh, were they uh, wildlife management units, uh, CMWUs, Cooperative Wildlife Management Units. They've done a pretty good job with that, but the, the uh, uh, these people get all wound up and they fail to recognize that they live in these deer and elks winter range. Like Salt Lake City is dead set flat covering the entire winter range of the elk herd that once roamed that area and now is like a tiny little old elk herd uh, on the Waxatch uh, mountain range. They The elk can't survive because they're surrounded by 12 and 13,000 foot peaks and the only places they could go to make it through a winter is a suburb now so they get pushed into like foothills and it's like great i'm on a foothill but there's still three feet of freaking snow on this foothill through the winter you know so it's actually the cities that are killing off uh the wildlife in in these areas and and people blame ranches and the ranches are what's feeding the elk through the winters something like very often out of haystacks and you know so then they get all wound up about a handful of depredation tags being handed out and those i mean the depredation tags are just kind of almost making up for crop loss uh it's really your apartment complex that has made this the way that it is you know and they just don't they just fundamentally do not understand the way uh they just fundamentally do not understand the patterns of these animals that they purport to protect that's that's what it is because no one's talking about reintroducing grizzly bears to use another example of yours no one's talking about reintroducing grizzly bears to denver or you know to uh san francisco or something like this right like it's always just uh like where i live you know um which is fine but they just i don't know they're just completely blinded to the fact that they actually live where these animals um, are supposed to be. There was a local paper here in the DC area that joked, but I think they were partly serious. They said, but it was April fool's day, the published date. So I took it with a grain of salt, but I was like, no, it actually sounds really serious. So they said that because of our deer problem here in the area, which can be fixed by hunters, mind you, Mm -hmm. they said that reintroducing wolves here would help the problem. And I was like, no, that wouldn't do anything. We start to see reintroduction efforts in Colorado, which was a ballot initiative. And they had said, well, this will not lead to any attacks. And I think there's already been an instance of one attack by wolves in Colorado. So we're going to see that experiment play out right now with these uh, ballot initiatives that would supersede kind of wildlife management science and give citizens the ability to determine whether or not species are reintroduced. But it's, it's interesting. And I think it's more so kind of a removal. I feel like a lot of these people who put top-down policies are very removed from nature, despite claiming to be the biggest environmentalist. They're conscious about everything. They want us to eat less meat and do this and that. And do you see it as like a disconnect, what they're pushing? Maybe in my thinking as a political analyst, I see that as like, they're very removed and they think that 
pushing this narrative will get people to comply and go along with their plan. But I think the public is not responding to environmentalists kind of demands for not eating meat anymore or adopting alternatives or kind of this, like, what was it? It was, it looked like this pate fake meat. I think I saw some video <laughs> Ikea or something was putting out like this really disgusting looking meat. Like I would never eat an alternative. They don't taste as good. And it's far less healthy for you to eat with all these preservatives. But I think it's a disconnect, not knowing where the American people fall, like people are wanting to be closer to the food that they eat. And that includes eating wild game meat and more, you know, organically sourced or more kind of healthily sourced uh, cattle and other type of red meat, hogs, things of that sort. So is that something what goes into the thinking of putting these top-down policies like 30-30 because they don't know how to look to localism and they're like, a top-down solution is going to work. We've got a couple of things going for us here. Um, I think that, so first of all, yes, for the average Dem voter it is flat out disconnect. I used to not believe that, but then I started making posts about wildlife on Twitter and seeing the, the commentary that I would get from people on uh, the, the other side of the aisle. Uh, it, for the average Democrat, it is absolutely a flat out disconnect between like how not just not just human wildlife interaction, like how how wildlife actually lives their own lives. Um, so yes, there's a disconnect there. But at the top, I think it's more likely that they just know that they can pull on, they can use these empathy triggers. And like I think it, I think that comes from John Robb, but they can hit these empathy triggers and animate voters. So the people at the top will just basically Sarah McLaughlin video their voters and be like, you know, all these poor wolves or bears or whatever are being exterminated. Um, you need to come out and vote for me and I will save, you know, this, this wolf, which is just like your dog that you live in your yard, right? Like that's the cell. Um, but, but they never, they never want to talk about things like the native caribou herd that we had uh, in Northern Idaho. That's gone now, you know, um, is now extinct because of, of wolves and, and the biologists that managed that herd said as much several times, many times that they were killed by wolves. They, they don't acknowledge that, this, that stuff because the average voter isn't willing to do or isn't interested in doing research. So they don't, and they just kind of take marching orders from uh, whether it's commercials or groups or their, their local politician. So I think it's like, it is a disconnect but at the at the very top, it's not necessarily disconnect. It's just a straight up um, Machiavellian political game. At least that's what I. At least that's the way I view it. Seeing the response here to the euthanization of a red fox was really interesting to me. It's like a lot of people have never seen wildlife before. I have red foxes come to my backyard all the time across the river in Virginia. So to me, I see them and I'm not seeing them display aggressive behavior. And you can kind of joke like, well, maybe the environment's inviting the aggressive behavior in the foxes and it bit nine people. And so it's like, they're like adhering to what I think a friend of mine called this perfectly. And someone's like, oh, did you coin this term? And I said, no, no, I wish, but someone else did. But like they adhere to the hierarchy of cuteness when it comes to animals and, and wanting to protect them. And I like wolves. I don't want them to be extirpated from the landscape. I just think they shouldn't be given preference over other species or even humans at times. 
So I think you can coexist, but I think the, the advocates for the wolves or grizzlies don't want coexistence. They want them to supersede everyone else. And so they're like, because they're cute. And we saw them in Disney movies that they have to take precedence over everyone. We can't manage them even a little bit. And, and, and I think they don't think of the interests of the other travelers in those species groups. So like other bears, other wolves that are less aggressive or not as strong. And so they really don't, I don't think they really truly think in the interest of the species they're trying to conserve because they want them just to, you know, lollygag and frolic. And if people get attacked by them, it's, it's the person's fault, <laughs> not so much the animal's mm-hmm. fault if the animal was displaying aggressive behavior, but it's like the humans had it coming. And everyone was so disheartened with this example of the red fox. Oh no, why did they kill it? How dare they do it? And it's like, well, if the animal has rabies, you have to euthanize it and then examine its brain to see why it had rabies and what explained its aggressive behavior. So it's like a lot of people are like, oh no, it's so cute. How could you do this? This could have been prevented, but it's like, unfortunately that's the reality with wildlife, especially close to the cities. Yeah. In fact, so Dan Flores, now a fox wouldn't fall under this because it's too small, but Dan Flores coined, as far as I'm aware, it was Dan Flores that coined the term charismatic megafauna. And that is completely correct. That, that is exactly what happens. But uh, and, and to, to go back to the caribou wolf thing, caribou are not very charismatic and wolves are quite charismatic. So they prioritize the charismatic megafauna over the uh, the caribou who is actually on the verge of this extinction is now is, well, our caribou are extinct. You know, that now there, there are still caribou. So you could you could argue the term extirpated, but but our caribou are extinct now um, because of these wolves. And. Uh, so yeah, they they do, but the as far as like hunters getting killed by bears and that kind of stuff, or even even just people in general, I think that falls under something that falls in, into a different category because uh, certain groups uh, of people in this country seem to be elated by the idea of someone like me getting mauled to death by a bear. Like they, they love that. It's, it, it's uh, there's, there's like a Roman Coliseum uh, sort of vibe to, to the way that they talk about that kind of thing. And so I don't, I don't know. This gets into motive and I don't want to ascribe motive to anybody, but it does appear that they, they like to see people like, me get killed by bears but i agree with you i will say this before we you know go anywhere else i like hearing wolves i like seeing wolves uh you know i don't like when they're killing uh livestock <laughs> my right. friends and and stuff but uh now we haven't had any wolves killed by uh or excuse me any livestock killed by wolves but uh you know my friends lost 40 head of cattle uh, to them two years ago so, and, you know, they lose a bunch of, and that's just what you can prove that was wolf kill, right? Um, so I don't like that part, but I do like to see them. And I love to be out there on top of a bridge, glass and elk and hear wolves howling and stuff. I just, I really like it. I think, um, I think it's great, but at the same time, you cannot take my right to defend my livelihood away from me or else we've, we've come to some place that is fundamentally anti-American. And the same is true for bears. You know, uh, I actually like grizzly bears. I like looking at them. I think they're super neat. Uh, but I shouldn't have to be terrified of defending myself and from a grizzly bear. Now, I 
you know, I've never, I've gotten myself into a couple of hairy situations, but I've never had to shoot a bear, uh, a grizzly bear. I've shot other bears, but, um, yeah, I don't like the feeling uh, of knowing that, like, if I make a mistake here, I have to be able to prove that I killed this bear like he was uh, attacking me in downtown Philadelphia. Like, it's basically a manslaughter charge uh, with some extra emotion behind it. You know what I mean? And I don't like that part, but I do like seeing bears around. So I, I, I don't know the, I don't know how we, I don't know how we solve for this problem, but I do know that there is, there's a real there's a real issue with the way these things are presented and like the Fox that you're talking about, you know what wolves do when they move into an area, right? Like, um, I know you guys don't have wolves there, but the first thing wolves do is target every other dog that they can find in that area. They're extremely territorial animals, territorial animals. So they will kill all of the coyotes and all the foxes that are in their area that they can find. So, it's not like the cuteness part is true, but there is a weird hierarchy even on the cuteness side, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, you know, because no one cares about a fox if it's a wolf killing the fox, you know, or the coyote killing the fox or the wolf killing the coyote and, and so on, you know. Um, and then you get into this very weird area where now you have to like try to determine why wolves are held at such high regard. And I don't know that I really have the answer that you know i know why hunters who respect wolves like them i know exactly why um i mean cormac mccarthy wrote about it in the border trilogy you know and famously aldo leopold and the green fire right i know exactly why people like me like and respect wolves but i do not know why the new jersey cat lady or you know <laughs> the, the the wine mom in austin likes wolves that part i don't understand Maybe it's to be part of a cool club because everyone is doing it in their in in their mind. Maybe because it's kind of the cool thing to do, the thing to like and support. It always seems to be around that or maybe to be socially accepted, something of that nature. And maybe that's the part where the, let's say the anti-hunters or the specious, <laughs> I would say, <laughs> uh, you know, try they do well in marketing. But I think hunting interests and and people in the greater outdoor industry are doing really well to combat that and showcase kind of the nuances between bears and wolves and humans. And one great outfit that does that was Blood Origins who shared your story and you call yourself a storyteller as well. And I think that's apropos and, and very accurate with what you do, but how important do you think can storytelling from our side of conservation kind of combat their storytelling, which is long dominated. Obviously they have favored status in media, pop culture, education. What's an effective way, kind of a final thought I want to ask of you before I let you go. How can outdoor storytelling, I would say, compete with these interests? Uh, first of all, yeah, Blood Origins. Robbie's my friend, uh, the guy who founded and runs uh, blood origins he's my buddy uh he's a great guy really good guy and i think he brings a very interesting you know he's a south african guy spent a lot of time hunting and filming and all of this kind of stuff in africa uh so he sees this from the, t- the two most uh sort of popular and respected wildlife models in the world 
are the North American wildlife model, model ours in Canada, essentially, um, to some degree Mexico, but that's a whole other, you know, uh, which is, uh, it's a, it's a pay to play, but uh, much more focus on opportunity than uh, trophy and this kind of stuff. Like that's sort of our model. And the model is that we are focused on keeping herds and populations healthy and uh, robust, but also giving uh, people the opportunity to explore the great outdoors and experience a hunt. Like that's in, in some sense, that's the North American wildlife model. Whereas the African wildlife model is here. We have these uh, in, in some ways, pristine landscapes with uh, these very intact and uh, exotic species. Uh, when I say intact, I mean like the suite of their animals are in some sense more intact um, and all of these exotic and alluring species. And you can come over here and hunt uh, these animals, but it's going to cost you a lot of money. And most importantly, when you kill these animals, you can't take the meat because the meat has to go to feed uh, like a local tribe and, and that kind of thing. So you don't get to come home with meat. So there's a disconnect even there where now it's like when people accuse people of when I would say people on the left in general accuse uh, people, hunters in Africa of being trophy hunters or sport hunters, they're coming from the perspective of, well, you're not eating anything that you're killing over there, which is true, but that's, I mean, maybe they get a steak or two, uh, you know, I've heard a bunch of stories, they maybe eat a little bit, but the majority of the animal goes to the people. So it is true to call that sport hunting uh, in the, in the strictest sense, sense of the definition, like there, there is no subsistence element to that model. Whereas on the American side, uh, you know, you're required to take the meat out, even if you don't want it. So there is a, a subsistence element, but what Robbie brings to the table is he has experienced both of these things and both of these models. And there actually are, in my opinion, pluses and uh, minuses to, to either model, but I think ours is superior. And Robbie, Robbie is in a position where he can, uh, and plus he's, you know, he's a scientist and this kind of stuff. So he's, he's able to be slightly more objective, I think, than the average person, but he can view these two, these, these, uh, competing models in a way that is, um, uh, interesting and different enough to be like worthwhile to pay attention to. So when you ask about like storytelling, I think storytelling is incredibly important, but I think who is telling the story is more important. And I'm not trying to do a commercial for my friend here, but I think what Robbie, so far as like the storytelling part goes, I think Blood Origins and Robbie, their focus is, it's a good one because it's really, it's coming from, I don't know, it's coming from a very unique perspective. So like there's lots of hunting videos that you know, I'm friends with, um, I don't want to drop names here, but I'm friends with some other people that are uh, very big time on the American side of like story, like hunting and wildlife and storytelling. And that stuff is all good. And I think it's great. Like um, for instance, Steve Ronella does a really good job with like the storytelling part, but even Steve, I feel like doesn't quite bring the same perspective to the table that, that Robbie does. And they might not see things the same all the time, but I think Robbie's view is the 
in my in my from my vantage point, I think Robbie's view on this stuff is the most worthwhile. Now, for me as a storyteller personally, I would say that uh, I have to I would have to approach this just like I do everything else in life and just try to be who I am and live out what I say that I believe and hope that that translates to the people uh, or hope that that message gets to the people that are willing to hear it, you know, because if I was to go into writing a piece on hunting or, or making a film on hunting and have some agenda in mind before I set forth, then I, that would feel like propaganda to me and it would, it would be fake and, it just it just wouldn't work so i just have to try to do my best to um like live out my own beliefs and support people like my friend robbie honestly and vortex like they've done a great job with some of this as well vortex is great and we've had robbie on the show on two occasions i haven't met him yet but hopefully at some point we get to connect in the future where can everyone follow you follow what you do with your business your musings dish all the links that are appropriate for people to connect you Um, if you're interested in spending time in the great outdoors and learning practical skills like precision rifle shooting and uh, sort of mountain traversing skills and survival skills and these kind of hunting things uh, and also just like out of door skills and I would say bunkhouse.braxonmccoy.com is the best place to go we have a a group of guys there and we hire out instructors and have some instructors that are members that help uh, teach stuff. If you just want to hear me ramble uh, nonsensically, like I tend to do, then Twitter or BraxMcCoy.com is another place that you can go. Fabulous. It has been such a pleasure to chat with you, Braxton. Your story is so fascinating. I learned a lot too, even in the conservation space and about Utah and conservation easement programs more. So thank you for sharing your invaluable perspective with my listeners. Thank you, ma'am, for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of District of Conservation. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you're following the podcast on your preferred player. We recommend Apple because that's where the largest share of our listenership hails from. You can also find us on Spotify and dozens of other platforms. Make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. And please, please, please go leave us some reviews on Apple and Spotify. Those help us go a long way in seeing how far we can go and measure our progress. So we really appreciate that. If you enjoy this podcast, please share the word with your friends, share links to individual episodes and to the podcast. Want to appear on the podcast? Have an interesting story to tell? I'm all ears. Shoot me a message and we'll do our best to process your request.